It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 149, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. Heather Seacrest raises two acres of vegetables as well as pastured pork and lamb on 16 acres at Suncrest Gardens Farm in the rural hills of Cochrane, Wisconsin, and turns it all into pizzas and other value-added foods. With sales on farm during pizza nights and a new garden cafe, as well as to Farmer's Market in Winona, Minnesota, Heather has developed a business model that works for herself and for her family. Heather returned to the region where she grew up on a family farm to start Suncrest Gardens Farm back in 2003 and has been making pizza for on-farm pizza nights since long before it was cool. She shares with us how she grew the farm and value-added operation to provide her with a full-time living, including developing the infrastructure, marketing to regular and occasional customers, and how she's negotiated the regulations for her small-scale processing facility as well as how our marketing strategy has evolved through the years. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is generously supported by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are versatile, maneuverable in tight spaces, lightweight for less compaction, and easy to maintain and repair on the farm. Gear-driven and built to last for decades of dependable service, bcsamerica.com. And by Vermont Compost Company, founded by organic crop-growing professionals, committed to meeting the need for high-quality composts and compost-based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com And by High Mowing Organic Seeds, the first independently owned, farm-based seed company proudly serving professional organic growers with a full line of 100% certified organic and non-GMO project verified vegetable, herb, flower, and cover crop seeds. HighMowingSeeds.com Heather Seacrest, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Hi, Chris. Nice to be with you this morning. So I'd like to start off by having you tell us about Suncrest Gardens Farm, where you guys are located, and just exactly what you're doing there. Well, Suncrest Gardens Farm is in the rural hills of Cochrane, Wisconsin, kind of more towards Wamandy, and we're about six miles off the Great River Road, also known as Highway 35 there. So remote, but not too remote for people to find us. And what we do here on the farm is, well, we're a small farm, so we are only 16 acres. Our farm consists of a variety of vegetables that we raise on a couple acres. We have livestock as well. And then our other aspect of the farm is what people refer to as the pizza farm. And so it's the licensed kitchen side where we create wood-fired pizzas, May through September, and we also use that kitchen now to create other value-added items that we can sell directly to customers or through the farmer's market. You've been farming at Suncrest Gardens Farm for how long? Well, the farm started about 14 years ago, and then the pizza side of the farm began about 12 years ago. Okay, it seems to me like everybody's doing a pizza farm right now. I keep getting people on the show, and they're like, oh yeah, by the way, we're doing a pizza farm. And But you've been doing this since long before that was cool. When I first had the ideas of the farm here, because of its limited size, I knew that having a licensed kitchen was going to be an integral part of this farm. And so I don't think I realized the full impact of having the the pizza farm be as big as it is now today, um, be a part of the whole, the whole picture here. But it, for me, it was like a blank canvas that I was very comfortable with preparing and it left a lot of creativity to be involved, you know, and what items could be put on those pizzas. 
And it's an easy sell because people love pizza. Well, you say it's an easy sell, but when you were talking about your location, I mean, you said six miles off of the Great River Road, which is, I mean, I'm just going to say one of my favorite roads in the country. But you're not exactly located near major metropolitan centers. When we first built the farm and we're going to have the pizza farm, you know, be a part of it, I mean, people thought, wow, you know, kind of good luck with that. You're out in the middle of nowhere, right? And, um, you know, it was just something that we felt right. I didn't have huge expectations for. It felt like just a natural way to incorporate everything that we did on the farm. Um, In our same driveway is actually the Great River Organic Mill. And so we had this asset that was literally next door where we could pull the little wagon over and get flour to bring it over to our kitchen. And so um, that seemed like a natural marriage, you know, to, to utilize that asset. But, you know, we started really small and maybe that first season, you know, 30 pizzas seemed like, whoa, wow, you know, that was a big accomplishment for that night. And, you know, to be honest, like we only, we didn't know exactly what we were doing, but we're just learning as we grew and grew slowly every year through word of mouth. And it's primarily how people heard of us is they, they liked what they were eating here. They told their friends, you got to come out and try it. And so it just sort of grew every season like that, um, you know, to where we are now, where I'm really having to have a full entourage of staff that help meet the demands on those busy prime summer evenings out here on the farm. So how do the pizza nights work on your farm? How many nights a week are you doing that? We're open one to two nights a week. May through September, and then we open up for the two nights, June, July, and August, So, and that's a Thursday night. So it's not a huge amount of nights there, but it takes a lot of effort to pull off a pizza night. And how many pizzas are you doing in a typical night? You know, a typical night, um, Thursdays are going to be a little bit slower than Fridays, just due to the natural weekend, you know, draw that the Friday night has. And so um, the Thursday nights maybe have 75 pizzas on average, and the Friday nights maybe around 150 on average. When you're talking about a pizza, is that serving one person or is that serving a family? Well, the pizzas come into different sizes. So we have the 16-inch pizza side, which um, can feed, you know, two to three people, depending on how hungry they are. And then we also started offering a 12-inch size um, the last two years, I think. And, you know, depending on how you are, it could feed uh, one to two people. In addition to the pizza nights, then, you are growing a lot of the products that you're putting on the pizza, right? Right. So it's not just producing pizzas here. You know, we raise um, most all of the vegetables that we put on the pizzas here. So there's the tomatoes, the peppers, the garlic, onions, um, your basic standard fare that might find its way onto a pizza. But we also find fun ways to incorporate, you know, sweet corn that's in season on a pizza and different seasonal pestos that we make. And the kale and broccoli and carrots are all found, you know, on a pizza as well. So you kind of have an offering of, you know, your standard vegetarian or a meat lovers type pizzas that we have here. But then you have all the seasonal fun ones that can be inspired from an abundance of something in the garden that week or from just a new 
way that I want to combine some, you know, vegetables that week. And about how many acres of vegetables are you growing? Well, we have about a three-acre garden space out there. One of those acres has cover crops and some clover-mixed driving lanes to access the different plots that are out there. So that gives us about two acres of growing space that we have. But we also have our pastured hogs that are raised out in the back of the garden space. And so we, you know, have a variety of livestock that are incorporated into the farm, not in huge numbers because, again, of our size, we're small, but in numbers that are able to, you know, meet our needs for the pizza products. So we're doing a whole hog sausage on the pizzas, and those are from the hogs that we raise here on the farm. And then we also offer chicken on the pizzas, which are from our meat birds, uh, bacon, Canadian bacon. We also have our Euro-seasoned lamb. And so, you know, it might be easier for some people to just go buy some lamb to put it on your pizza. That would seem like a pretty straightforward decision. But the way I did it was I brought a small (laughs) um, (laughs) breeding herd of Katahdin sheep, and it took me three years to build up this herd to now where I have a crop of lambs that I'm able to process and have lamb on a Euro pizza. So maybe it's the slow way (laughs) to get that food onto the plate, but it's a way that is just part of the principles of the farm. Um, You don't just order off the truck. It actually comes here from the farm. And you have all of that love that's built into those pizzas then. And I assume that's something that's an important part of the experience for the people that come out for pizza night. Yeah, I think the food is just, just one aspect of the pizza farm. You know, the other half is widely the experience that they have here. You know, if you're looking for fast food, there probably are easier ways to have that meal. But... The pizza farm is really, usually people are spending a couple hours here. Um, They're taking a little time to slow down and to relax and enjoy people watching, um, enjoy live music that we offer. Actually, once a week, every Friday, uh, we offer live music in the yard here. Uh, You can walk around, take some walks through the garden, visit the different farm animals that you might see, bring a yard game visit with your neighbor that you actually haven't had a conversation with, even though you drive by regularly, all those things. It just kind of lets you unplug a little bit out here. I really enjoy the tagline that shows up at the bottom of your webpage, and it's it's also in the, the title of the page, which is eat well, smile often. And it, it did seem like as I was, as I was noodling around that that's, you put a lot of emphasis on, on helping your customers to get those smiles. The eat well, smile often tagline was something that came very early in the whole farm. It's really what's at the heart of everything I think here is that when you have food and it tastes good and it's clean food and all of it, it just leads to you feeling good about yourself. And to be able to share that with other people and see their enjoyment of the food that you have raised yourself or to combine flavors in a way that just makes a great experience. It's just a really a wonderful part of the job here. What other things do you do at Suncrest Gardens Farm besides providing pizza that makes people smile when they show up for a pizza night? Well, I think what brings the smiles to our, the folks that visit the farm here is sometimes the 
what they think the experience is going to be like going to eat pizza on a farm is totally not exactly what they're going to experience here. Like we're a small setting in the valley, so you have this enclosed kind of hug around you, I would say, as you land in the valley. And you've driven out here on this windy road along 88, and you feel like you're going out in the middle of nowhere. And then it's like this little oasis pops up, and you can see kids and families frolicking around in the yard, and you see the different animals that are out there, and it's just kind of an idyllic setting for everything to be. And then everyone just seems a little bit more relaxed out here. There's no cell service, so people are less tuned into their devices a little bit here. Our staff has been with us for many seasons, and they're more like family, I would say, than they are just a person that works here. And so their passion and their love of what they do and being a part of the farm really comes right through them to the customers and stuff. And so, it, like I say, it's a lot more than just the food that they get here that makes them feel like this is a special place. You mentioned that it takes a lot of people to make a pizza night happen, but your staff is involved in more than just pizza nights, right? Right. Our staff here during the summertime, we have about two people that work full-time in the garden space and working in the kitchens along with the pizza nights. And then we have about 10 staff that work part-time schedules that come in primarily for just the pizza nights. And then in the wintertime, it all scales back. And uh, I have about one person that helps part-time with the farm things to keep processing uh, those items that we've harvested and uh, to still help out going to the farmer's market. Where have you drawn your staff from? I mean, you said these folks have been with you for a long time. You know, finding staff here for the farm has never been too much of an issue. Some of our summer seasonal people have come kind of doing like an internship on the farm, usually during kind of college break time. So they come from all over. They've come from Maryland, down south, you know, Winona, close areas like that. Um, So... Usually one of those people is a college-aged person with a summer time availability. And then the other person is can be anybody. Just, uh, usually we have a couple, a neighbor family that has three daughters, and all of their daughters now work in the farm in some degree, which is kind of fun. So we've kept it in the family that way. Obviously, they've spoken well of us back home and... Uh, um, it's really great to have gotten to know them and to kind of continue that relationship with with them. And so the other staff, some I've grown up in the area, so I know a lot of different people here are old classmates of mine with their husbands and then children that are now working here as well, um, neighbors and other sorts that just have signed up to be part of the fun here. Is Suncrest Gardens Farm where you grew up, or did you grow up on a farm in the area? I was raised just upriver in Alma, Wisconsin, and I was an only child and grew up on a dairy farm there. And so I was very much used to the rigors of farm life and was my dad's hired hand, a uh, great summer job there, right? <laughs> um, helped milk cows, uh, raked a lot of hay um, growing up and was always in charge of feeding all the calves 
and things like that on the farm. And so when my parents sold their farm, I was a junior in high school, and they kind of asked, do you want to take over the farm? And I thought, heck no. (laughs) I do not want to sign up to do all this right now. And was very much in the thought process of, you know, I was going to grow up and leave the area and go do something else. Um, I thought I was going to go into veterinary medicine or something else like that. So the farm was sold and through life's journeys back to figuring out what it is that I wanted to do, I found that the roots of farming were very strong in me. Like knowing where my food came from was really important. And I really liked growing food, but in abundance, not just a small garden. I think I tried my first garden and I had 36 tomato plants. And as a single person, (laughs) I was completely overwhelmed by all of these tomatoes that I had to pick all of them, was surrounded by bushels and bushels of tomatoes in my kitchen. And remember like crying over the stove because I had to process them all because I couldn't waste anything. And um, and so I decided, hmm, I think I'm on to something here, but I need to feed more people than just myself, <laughs> you know, with this. And so that's kind of a little bit of the nudge that I found, you know, getting into growing vegetables and food for people. And what brought you back to the area where you grew up? I think just when I was ready to settle and have a family of my own, I was just sort of drawn back to my hometown area, you know, where I had family. My parents actually just live three miles over the hill from where the farm is now. Um, They've moved downriver closer to me after the years here. So it's nice to have my folks so close because they've been able to assist, especially while my children were young, in raising of them and helping with some of the construction of the buildings and stuff here. My dad had switched gears from dairy farming into construction, which was a very nice gift to be able to help utilize some of his skills in the building of the farm here. When you came onto the farm, was it blank land or were there buildings that you kind of inhabited? The farm was literally just 16 acres. So it was just a little section of the valley space um, that was available. I looked at a lot of different farms and they frankly were just too much investment, you know, for me, for what I was wanting to grow, the size that I was wanting to grow. And so I was able to kind of get in on 16 acres and then start with a fresh approach to that land to make it be what I was wanting to be. You mentioned that you've got kids. How old are your children? Uh, I have two boys. Ashlyn is 12 years old and Ethan is now 10. So the farm has been in existence for 14 years. So there was a couple years there pre-children to work on trying to get things established. A lot of building, I think, happened for (laughs) the first few years. You know, building the barn actually came first before a house. Uh, The house came second, which was a multi-year process to get that up because we put in a lot of our own sweat equity into all those things. I would say that that barn that we built, though, was one of those things that we really sort of built backwards because we built the barn in its original size of a 24 by 48 small barn with a loft, but it's been added onto at least three times, which has these three different heights of the barn that extend out from it now. And what was originally a gravel interior pole shed style building that had 
you know, attractors or equipment and animals in is now a concrete floor, insulated walls, the drop ceiling, a barn that's made for people. So there was a little loss of the barn probably cost way more to build nowadays than it needed to had I had the proper vision of where this is all going to go to, you know, from the beginning. Well, and of course you say proper vision, but it, I mean, so much of that I would imagine has just been feeling your way and figuring out how you're going to make a living off of a small plot of vegetables in rural Wisconsin. Yeah, feeling the way is definitely a good way to put it because, you know, if you build it, they will come, right? That's that saying for the Iowa baseball diamond cornfield or just having to tap into like the energy of the farm and what people are wanting from the farm, you know, as far as what the customers um, seem to be driving the farm, you know, in what we produce for them. And so sometimes it's been harder to do, you know, in what enterprises you keep and what enterprises you drop because you have a lot of heart into them. Like with our CSA, I had a CSA here on the farm for at least 10 years. Um, and it grew from just a single season CSA where we had started with just summer and maybe you know, a couple, I think it started with six shares the first year that we did it. So it was just feeling it out to see if there was any interest in here. And then it grew to 12 shares and 24 shares, 36 shares, you know, eventually got to 70 shares here on the farm. And, um, you know, which was a, a good amount for a small crew to be able to put out there in a very rural area, like you said. And we only marketed or drove those CSA boxes as far as Winona. So very short distance. It was 20 miles from the farm. We never chose to go beyond that radius. We've always, I didn't ever want to spend my time in the car driving places. It's not one of my favorite things. And so over time, instead of growing those CSA shares to be larger, we chose to try to take better care of our people in a longer season. And so by better care, just provide them food through a longer period of time. That's where we've added spring shares, fall shares, eventually winter shares to a full year-round type CSA people or CSA option. And uh, so that was very fun and challenging, you know, to meet those needs and figure out how to create those shares for all the different seasons. Do you still have the CSA? Are you still selling fresh produce off the farm? We actually stopped offering the CSA this last season, and it was a really hard decision for me to make because I had all these connections um, with the families, and I felt like, you know, we had raised the children or helped feed the children that were in womb that I now knew as, you know, 10-year-olds running around, and we all had a really good relationship with everybody. And I just felt so dedicated to the families and to be providing that food for them. But I also kind of had a, a new motto that was entering the farm was farm smarter, not harder. Um, that was added on to that eat well, smile often. <laughs> and the other motto was also um, was just to try to do less while still making our living here. And so we gave up that CSA, you know, fall-winter option and 
decided to put all the fresh produce through our kitchen here because that was something really unique that this small farm had was that licensed kitchen. And so when you talk about putting all of that produce through the kitchen, what else are you doing besides the wood-fired pizzas on pizza night? So we go to the Winona Farmer's Market, which is actually a year-round market, and we are able to offer a variety of frozen soups that we sell there. We've started making our frozen uh, wood-fired pizzas so that we can extend this you know, season for those and because there's a demand for them. Um, it took me a long time to kind of realize that people really had us niched as a pizza farm. Or when they thought of Suncrest Gardens, they were thinking, oh, yeah, that's that pizza farm. And so that's kind of what they kept asking for, you know, was things down that road. And we can see just in the market trends present today that there is a desire to have more ready-to-eat kind of convenience type foods, but that are still healthy. So instead of having a CSA box that has all of the fresh produce um, there for them to chop up and to prepare into a meal, which does require some thinking and some planning and a little bit of time, um, that we instead would do all the preparations for the food here and then send that out to our customers. And people, you know, received that well and wanted us to do more and more of that instead of having them to put in the labor and the time. Well, and, you know, pizza is kind of a universal food, right? I mean, that's something that I think everybody eats. Yeah, you can make pizzas. Like I say, the crust is a blank canvas. And so you can make it be anything that you want. And sometimes some of our uh, seasonal offerings are a little unique, but they are just inspired from other dishes that you would find out there that you might like. So our sesame chicken pizza is inspired from one of my favorite Chinese dishes, you know, the sesame chicken, where you have the chicken and the fresh, um, like, steamed broccoli and things on there. And so we just made a really delicious brown sauce and put that on the pizza with some cheese and the chicken, broccoli, some carrots to make it some pretty color on there, a little bit of sesame seeds on top, and then our own um, made sweet, spicy chili sauce made it kind of pop. And so, like, what a fun different way to put broccoli on a pizza that is a way that people are willing to try and not go, whoa, broccoli pizza, no way. Are you selling any of your prepared foods through wholesale channels, or is it all direct to retail customers? We sell 95% is direct to our customers. We have a few different um, wholesale people, some local places that are buying frozen pizzas to offer, either cooked or frozen to to customers at their locations, but primarily sell direct to to the user. Tell me a little bit about how the regulations work on that. I mean, you're you're doing prepared foods in Wisconsin. I mean, there's been a lot of discussion uh, here in Wisconsin about prepared foods and the cookie bill. And, you know, I know that it's not cookies, but, you know, yep. there's a lot of conversation going on about what's an appropriate level of regulation for that. What What have you had to do to meet the regulatory requirements here in Wisconsin? And then 
you're taking stuff across the river into Winona, Minnesota. And I'm curious what sort of regulatory concerns that's raised for you. Right. Well, we have had a licensed kitchen here for, well, at least 12 years now. And so, I mean, Wisconsin is, has been very, you know, There's a lot of things I could say. <laughs> There's a lot of things to say about Wisconsin right now. Yeah, right. Um, so working with our local health inspector from Wisconsin has really been a, a good working relationship from the beginning. And so there's very clear expectations of what was needed um, in the licensed kitchen. Um, one of the challenges we had was concerning, like, a grease trap. The the rules said that we should have a large tank buried in the yard um, because that was just the universal rule. However, common sense was, you know, showing that we are only open one or two nights a week throughout six months. So the amount of grease that we are actually creating or using that's going to go through that grease trap doesn't require a multi-thousand dollar tank to be put into the yard. There is a smaller unit that can be put inside the kitchen in the building that is much more cost effective that still took care of the need to remove any grease from that wastewater that comes from the kitchen. And so we were eventually able to have our request pass through the desk of a very commonsensical man that was in the Green Bay area who gave us that stamp of approval to have the smaller grease trap that we service yearly that's in our kitchen. So that saved us you know, several thousand dollars in the setup of our licensed kitchen here. But otherwise, we collected equipment that was used slowly over time, have bought units used usually first to make sure that they were well, they were more affordable for us to get our hands on. And then if they were used well within the kitchen, then we could always expand, you know, as we needed to. I mean, you said that with regards to that grease trap, and I, I know this is like such a fiddly little thing to talk about, but you said that you you ended up getting that passed across the desk of a regulator in Green Bay, which is on the opposite side of the state. And, you know, Wisconsin's not a, it's not a small state, uh, you know, either population-wise or geographically. Tell me a little bit more about how how that worked. How did you navigate that regulatory process? Because a lot of times, and you know, we're certainly seeing this with the produce safety rule, and I think you see it to a certain degree even with the uh, even with the the preventive controls rule, the one that's the with the Food Safety Modernization Act that has to do with processed foods and handling and storing product. Mm-hmm. You know, common sense isn't nearly as common as the name would indicate, and. How did you navigate that process to get to the right person who had the common sense to say, you know, you don't need a seven-day-a-week grease trap? Getting the smaller grease trap was really just pure luck, I think, at the end, because I tried to talk to so many different people that were in La Crosse, in Eau Claire, in the different more local, you know, um, agencies, and all of them just said, nope, that just isn't what we're going to accept. You know, there is an option that you can apply for a variance to the rule. And I applied for it several times because to me, it just didn't make sense, you know, that we had to have this major grease trap unit when we could, you know, suffice with a much smaller one. 
And I think I finally was just ready to just give up and give in and go, whatever, this is just what we need to do in order to move forward with the process. And I believe my plumber was looking for the unit to install here. And while he was looking for the actual grease trap, he took it to the Green Bay area where somebody with enough higher, you know, authority saw it and gave us the right approval. Probably one advantage of working with a professional plumber there, somebody that actually maybe knew a little bit more about how to navigate that process and and how to kind of bounce through it because they've been around and they've seen other people dealing with similar situations. Yes. Yeah. What I thought I was working through the right chains to try to acquire the proper variance. You know, in the end, our our plumber was able to look in a different direction and gave us the the help that we needed. Speaking of plumbing, what do you guys do for toilets on the farm for visitors? Well, we actually use a composting toilet system here on the farm. And so um, at first we used a portable outhouse and uh, um, nothing wrong with using an outhouse. You know, it was a convenient method to deal with that side of having the public being out at your place. So having a porta potty out here on the farm when we had uh, a smaller amount of traffic with the pizza farm was a great way to offer the bathroom facilities that the public needed. As the numbers of people coming through the farm grew a little bit, our number of porta potties was going to have to increase as well. And I just felt that I didn't like the idea of the blue chemical toilet stuff being spread on the fields in some of our local areas. I just felt like there was a different way that we could handle the bathroom facility side of working with the public. And so we actually turned to the composting outhouse setup that we have now. And so we have a three-stall bathroom, so it can handle the amount of traffic we have. But it also smells a little fresher than, say, a porta potty does. has little curtains in it, has the laminate flooring in it, so it's all cleanable. It's made out of wood. It just looks friendlier and more like a space that you don't mind using in the middle of summer. And then we have to manage, obviously, the outhouse and stuff. And it's really the concept written by the human error topic. With a five-gallon bucket system, we use sawdust from a local mill as our carbon ratio in there. We have little spiffy directions for people. You know, one scoop of sawdust for number ones and two scoops for number twos. And everybody kind of gets it. And it goes through a two-year composting process and then is used in our non-food production areas of the farm. And the food safety guys didn't give you a hard time about that? Well, it falls in a gray area, you know, and frankly, walking the gray lines is is somewhere, you know, is kind of what you do. And if you ask for clarification, sometimes then you're asking them to draw the line. And so I've kind of been told a few times, like, don't ask me that question because then I have to clarify versus you can remain in a gray area because I don't feel like we're doing anything harmful, you know, or bad. It's just that if you require the exact specifications for everything you need to do when it's not necessarily written there, as long as it is for good health and for land and water safety and, you know, makes sense and takes care of all the checks that are around it, you know, sometimes you can use systems that aren't 
written specifically down. I've run into this a lot. I mean, both as a as a farmer, I've run into this as a uh, as a as a food safety trainer, and I've run into this even when I've gone to train the trainer programs as a food safety person. You know, a lot of times it's like, just give me the answer. Tell me exactly what I have to do. But a lot of times those food safety regulations are actually written with quite a bit of flexibility in them. And it really is about, you know, do you have a system that is going to not threaten public health? And it can be frustrating sometimes because we do just want somebody to tell us what to do. But I also think that that's one of the benefits of, of kind of the way that some of these regulations are written is that maybe you can put in a composting toilet and maybe that's something that you can get away with if you want to. And in a lot of ways, and I'd kind of look at the system that you're doing and I go, if I had to do a field toilet, right, I'd rather have that. And I feel like it's actually less risky to have a bucket of sawdust and humanure in place mm-hmm. than it is to actually have a porta potty out in your field with 40 gallons of liquid that when it tips over is going to run and soak into your soil. Right. My two cents worth on the poop subject there. So, <laughs> yes. <laughs> again, as long, of course, as you have a system for managing that in a safe manner, and like you said, not putting that back onto those food crops where, you know, that would potentially be a health hazard for people. You know, dealing with the public coming onto your farm is a, just a whole another subject, you know, to people control, management control of the flow of the people and the garbage that's generated, the recycling that's generated, you know, from products that they buy, how you deal with truck traffic or the car traffic and um, people that come even when you're not open because they heard about the farm and like another restaurant, you could drive to it any hours or any times of the day. But you might be having, you know, time with your family in the backyard and all of a sudden, you know, on Sunday afternoon, people are just strolling in through and are out walking around your farm because it is a, it's a place that is known to be open to the public. There are challenges when you open your farm gate to the public. I'm just curious. I mean, you know, talking about sort of this waste management stream, I mean, you mentioned recycling and trash and you know, I remember on my farm, one of the challenges that we had was that we really couldn't get anybody out to the farm to pick up the trash that we did generate. We had to figure out a way to get that to the landfill ourselves and to store that until we could make that trip where we were located in Northeast Iowa. And I know this is different in every neighborhood, but how do you deal with all of the recycling and the trash that results from the public and the kind of operation that you have? Well, we have... Uh, about five miles down the road is a recycling center and a place for us to take our trash. And so, you know, that is our only option because you need to take it to your township recycling center here in Wisconsin. Um, However, the hours of that facility are only two hours on a Wednesday, which happened to be our CSA delivery time back in the day, and two hours on a Saturday morning, which also happened to be um, farmer's market time. And so, that made it extra challenging for us to take care of those things. So I had to utilize my dad and other people to kind of help get their truck in and get that loaded and take it to the facilities ourselves. Um, in the last two seasons, I have come across a company from La Crosse that takes care of the recycling for those recycling centers that are around us, and they are now willing to come to the farm and pick up the weekly recycling um, on their own. 
And so that is a service that I'm so excited to be able to, you know, pay for because it saves us a ton of time in handling recycling, just the garbage that's generated from the sales of beer, wine, you know, soda, et cetera, that happens from the pizza nights. I mean, you talk about things like recycling and, and waste management and, and even like, you know, the poop management with the green toilets. All of this seems like it would take a lot of training for your customers to actually to get it and to get them to do the things that they need to do because that's pretty different than what's expected when you when you go to Pizza Hut. Training our customers to be able to manage their own waste, such as recycling their containers into the proper barrels, putting the cardboard pizza boxes into the cardboard recycling, taking all food scraps out and putting just a little bit that's left over, you know, trash into the garbage has been an ongoing um, battle at times <laughs> where, you know, you'll get a couple customers that'll take that pizza box and they will put it right into the trash can and that trash can is full from two 16-inch boxes. And in a busy night, there may be 300 boxes. So, you know, the common sense part would say that, you know, obviously those boxes are not going to function well, you know, for our trash being put like that. So we have made a lot of different signage helping people to learn how to separate their their trash in the right places. If we see things left around in the wrong areas, we, you know, help people, show them how this works, try to explain to them. Our new brochure this year also lists kind of those environmental green practices that are used here at the farm. I think just a lot of us are used to, you know, throwing things in the garbage can or flushing whatever down the toilet and it's just out gone and we don't have to deal with it anymore without thinking about the process and the cycle that goes the entire way down. And so part of that experience here on the farm is really being involved in that whole process. And so there is a lot of education that goes on regarding that. All right, with that, we're going to take a break, get a word from a couple of sponsors, and then we'll be right back with Heather Seacrest from Suncrest Gardens Farm in Cochran, Wisconsin. Perennial support for the Farmer to Farmer podcast is provided by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractor is the only power equipment a market gardener will need. With PTO-driven attachments like the rototiller, flail mower, power harrow, rotary plow, snow thrower, log splitter, and more. You name it, you can probably run it with a versatile BCS two-wheel tractor. The first time I used a rototiller way back in 1991, it was mounted to a BCS two-wheel tractor and it spoiled me for life. When you get behind a BCS, you can tell that that thing is built to the same commercial standards as four-wheel farm tractors, and it has many of the same features. I've used other tillers and other mowers, and I spent most of the time thinking about how much easier it would be if I was using a BCS. Check out bcsamerica.com to see the full lineup of tractors and, and attachments plus videos of BCS in action. Perennial support for the Farmer to Farmer podcast is also provided by Vermont Compost Company. Vermont Compost Potting Soils promise you the presence of all of the complex humus-bound and glomalin-bound biota and proteins and nutrients, and they promise that there will be no genetic material that's viable to compete with or confuse your efforts. And that, of course, is this crazy, unnatural condition, but of course, so is putting things in potting soil in pots. Vermont Compost uses art and science to imitate nature and support plants within this unnatural condition. And that's why Vermont Compost provides an ideal medium to grow high-quality transplants. And while it's not all about saving money, 
Vermont Compost Fall Pre-Buy Program can help you get what your plants need at the best price with the best shipping options. Don't miss out. Vermont Compost Fall Pre-Buy Program runs September 21st through December 21st. Taking care of growers by taking care of transplants since 1992. That's a long time. VermontCompost.com All right, and we're back with Heather Seacrest of Suncrest Gardens Farm in Cochrane, Wisconsin. Heather, we were talking about kind of this communication with the customers on the farm, trying, you know, training them to to do the things that you need them to do when they're when they are out at the farm. And and I guess it raises a couple of questions for me, but the first one I'd like to ask is how many, you know, you talk about 150 pizzas a night on your on your Friday night pizza nights. Is that the same 150 people every week or are people coming out once a season? Um our customers, we have a variety of um customers that come out here. We have like our our local steadfast crew that comes out rain or shine, you know, to the farm, which is absolutely great to have that kind of crew because you know, when it is a rainy night here on the farm, where numbers are going to be a lot lower. Everyone's looking to have that full, beautiful summer night, you know, in the yards with live music and everything like that. Another group is going to be, you know, those that plan to do kind of, is there, you know, three three times that they might, you know, come. They're within a driving distance and they make it on their to-do list and they bring different friends or family that might be coming, you know, with them. And then we have kind of our third category, which more of like our culinary destination um, travelers that heard of us, maybe they're from a lot farther away from the farm. They are actually calling, making sure that we're open and are planning to make sure they swing through on that Thursday or Friday night when we're open, when they are driving through the Midwest area. And so we have a fun little map in the barn that has the 50 states on it and stuff and pins and so that people can mark where they have come from. And I think we are maybe left with just mm, under five states. Um, I have to check again uh, on what we're, you know, where we're looking to get those pins from. Primarily that far east coast, I think, is what, what we're out. I mean, you said people actually call the farm to make sure that you're open. I mean, I think about the kind of communication that you must be doing with your customers to let them know, hey, pizza season's starting and now we're doing it on Thursdays and on Fridays. And and how do you go about keeping in communication and letting your customer base know what's happening with your farm and with your schedule? Well, we've tried to stay pretty consistent, you know, with our schedule. Um, but we, we're on Facebook. We have our website. Um, we actually use a service called Single Platform, which helps um, put our stuff out there on, like, TripAdvisor, Yelp. Um, where else does it go? Well, it keeps it up to date on Google, has our menu on Google now. So all of those updates I don't have to physically do anymore, and I feel it's a pretty valuable service as people are on their devices um, as they're coming and going and stuff. So that is one of our primary ways of kind of getting our information out there. Um, of course, our phone number is on those things as well. And so we do have people that still call the farm um, double-checking, and I always have a voicemail message that is usually too long for most people in the summer that's telling the hours and our website and 
what we can, you know, what we offer so that it hopefully answers some of their questions. But, you know, I'm not by the phone a lot because I'm out in the fields working because it is a working farm. Um, and so it's hit or miss if you're going to actually get a hold of me um, on the farm here. So email usually works better. I think it makes a lot of sense to leverage that kind of technology like that single platform, especially because you do have so many different places that people might be going to look for the specific information about a farm like yours. Well, we've had a lot of different write-ups and press releases um, every year, the last few years and stuff. And those are fabulous ways that have put out the information about the farm or shared the pizza farm experience with people from all over the place. And so um, we haven't actually had to do a lot of marketing to promote the farm. We probably use those dollars to just keep up to date kind of that social media presence and keep our information online all up to date. You can spend a lot of money on marketing and our flow of customers has actually grown to be at a fairly good level to where we want it. And so instead of spending money on, say, newspaper ads or radio ads or all the other sorts of advertising streams, we've chosen to actually give donations back to those community auctions that are always looking for things to raise money for schools or for different programs, sports programs, or other things in the community. And so I feel like it's a great way for us to be involved in the community, give back to them, and also, you know, draws, highlights the farm name a little bit while it's at those events. And are you still trying to grow your business, or have you settled into a level that you're pretty happy with? Well, we do get a lot of calls asking you know, if we're open on Saturday and Sundays, because we only are open on Thursday and or Fridays, um, depending the time of year. And you know, so it would make one wonder if we should add, you know, one of those weekend nights to the farm operation and stuff. But the staff and I, we've talked about it. And, you know, there is, we're pretty tired by the end of Friday night to have a, a couple busy nights like that. And I don't think I could handle, you know, I'm the one that cooks all the pizzas that go through the oven. And so there might be 450 pizzas on a wonderful summer night that I've cooked um, in a matter of eight hours. And we've had, that's a lot of upper body strength that's needed. And you feel like you've ran a marathon at the end of the night. And to think about doing it all over another day is kind of more than what I want to do. And it kind of takes away from our family time that we have here as well. And the boys are both active in baseball and activities and things like that during the summertime. And so we've just kept it at that limited, you know, one to two nights a week. And I was going to ask why you chose Thursday night instead of Saturday night, but I suppose baseball kind of answers that question. Thursday nights were the original night of the pizza farm, and that is because we were taking our produce to farmer's market on Saturday morning. And so Friday was needed as a prep day um, for harvesting the produce and getting it all ready to take to the market. Um, That's why Thursday nights made sense for us. And it's kind of a precursor to the weekend. You know, you can kind of be a little tired if you go to work on Friday morning, if you've been out Thursday night, um, especially during those summer summer months. 
at the scale that you're at, at the, the level where you're operating now, are you making a living on the farm? Yes. Uh, the farm is my full-time, full-time job. Uh, it took probably at least seven years, you know, for it to kind of get to that point where it could sustain um, me as a full-time you know, job or income that I was getting raising from the farm here. And, you know, I was supplementing that income by doing some off-season tax work or some, you know, I even substitute taught in the school one winter. I decided I was not meant to be a kindergarten teacher. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, A mother was much easier than having a whole tribe of young ones to look after for the day. Um, and did a lot of different little side jobs that I could add, you know, in seasonally like that. But, you know, it came to a certain point where the farm really needed all of my time and energy for it to become what it needed. And that was a really great point to kind of come to and, um, you know, watch it flourish more because I was able to put even more into it. And as I mentioned earlier, pizza farms seem to be, you know, kind of popping up in every rural neighborhood now. Do you see competition coming down the road for what you're doing? Um, There are other pizza farms that have popped up. Uh, A new one just this season has come up and it's within, I don't know, 40 minute drive, you know, of the farm here or less. And so and there are probably at least five of them, you know, within an hour radius, you know, drawn on the map here. And so I don't really look at it as competition in the negative sense of it at all. I've always sort of viewed it as like California wine country. Like out there, there are all kinds of vineyards and all sorts of wines to taste. And each of them is unique. They have a different way that they do things. Um, They have their own flavors depending on how it's grown or where it's grown. And I think the same is true of the pizza farms, that it only has brought brought more attention to the fact that, oh, there are these cool destination, you know, like dining places that we can go to. And if they hadn't heard of a pizza farm, well, it just encourages more and more people to hear about it. And spreads the word um, that, oh, wow, well, I tried that one. Have you tried this one? Oh, no, well, I should go here. You know, kind of makes a hype about it. And uh, I've even heard some groups of friends or church groups or other people that have created like a pizza farm tour, you know, that they'll do for the season. And they'll make sure to go to all of them um, during that one summer in order to like compare and contrast and experience all for what they have. That's cool. I like that. Um, so tell me about how you balance your crop production with your processed food game. Because, you know, if you're going to a farmer's market or you're going to a CSA, and you have a lot of extra tomatoes. It's pretty easy to, to go and sell the extra tomatoes or add the tomatoes to the boxes. How do you manage that relative to your prepared food preparations? Well, because the farm enterprises have sort of changed um, throughout the years, uh, we are still trying to figure that balance out a little bit. Um, This last growing season was the first year that we did not have the CSA, 
And so everything was trying to go through the kitchen space. And so, you know, it, I felt like I made a big adjustment into what those, you know, the space that I was using to grow all the different varieties in the gardens shrunk. But in some regards, it didn't shrink enough. And so we were still left with like way too much broccoli. Um, and, you know, sweet corn that I probably didn't quite need to grow that much, but I'm not going to throw anything away. It's just not in my nature to do it. And so we, um, the volume of it, once it's, you know, sliced off the cob and, you know, blanched on the stove and then frozen is a lot smaller than when you have a truckload of cobs and husks and everything there. But it still takes up room in that walk-in freezer. And so it is, uh, it's a thing that I'm still trying to figure out. And, you know, I feel like one year into it, I've made some important changes and reductions. And now it's kind of trying to figure out how much less, you know, I can grow and still have enough to meet my needs. So I kind of think of myself like two acres and shrinking. (laughs) And I suppose that must be kind of a challenge with the pizza nights too. I mean, you've talked about how on average you're looking at 150 pizzas a night, but I think you mentioned that on your busiest nights, you might be looking at 450. Yeah. The, um, that would be the 450 would be like a weekly total. Uh, so yeah, busy night could have 350. So planning to make the right amount of dough, you know, for the night in advance and to prep the right amount of ingredients, the ingredients are prepped from the gardens the day of the pizza nights. We do use certain tricks to help us prepare for pizza nights, like roasting and freezing onions in advance because we can pull those out and use them, you know, on the pizzas that way. And we can impart that roasted flavor goodness to them versus serving just a a raw onion on the pizzas. And the same is for the peppers. You know, we don't just have peppers in August when peppers are abundant, we roast them, um, that whole crop, and then freeze them in portions that we can pull out and use on the pizza nights. So there's some things that we can do to help ourselves prepare in advance by using preservation methods, and there are some things that need to be done, you know, the day of. And again, I'm kind of comparing this to farmer's market. If you are at farmer's market and you run out of carrots, I mean, you might have some disappointed customers, but man, I would think that at pizza night, the last thing you want to ever have happen is to run out of pizza. You can't run out of pizza on pizza night. You know, you, so we never can run out of cheese. (laughs) That's one of those critical uh, ingredients for pizza. Um, And because we raise all of our own sausage ourselves, you know, we have a backlog of sausage in the freezers here. And so we we don't really run out of those things either because we can see in enough advance, you know, if something needs to be done. Or if we're starting to use the sausage that is allocated for the next season, that means we need to raise more hogs next year. Or you can go to another farm and get a hog or be processed and, and so forth. Ideally, we're doing it all ourselves here. Um, and keeping it in-house, but not a problem to ask another grower or to purchase things for wholesale that way. Now, do you advertise your pizzas as being organic or sustainable or anything else along those lines? We just, 
We advertise our pizzas as being delicious and creative and, you know, grown using farm-raised, you know, ingredients and crops here. Um, A lot of people say a lot of different things, you know, about them, but it's not necessarily about the labels that are out there. Um, We're very transparent in how we do things here. We grow things organically. Uh, We have non-GMO organic feeds that are now fed to the hogs and the birds and the meat birds and everything that are here and stuff. But I don't really get into promoting, I guess, that they're organic, which is the way that real food is supposed to be. Right. It's just food. It's just food. That's just the way it should be. (laughs) And as far as sourcing ingredients from off the farm, because you mentioned, well, Great River Organic Milling being right next door. You said that's where you get your flour from. But you mentioned things like cheese, which you're not making there on the farm. Where do you go about getting those kinds of products? Well, the quality of the cheese that we get um, is important to us. I mean, it needs to taste good. And there are so many types of grated cheese that have the anti-caking and other things added to them, and they just really take away the flavor of the cheese in the end. And so we were using cheese from um, Foremost Farms. It's not wasn't organic, but it was from milk that was produced right in our local area and stuff here. Um, we were buying it in a block form, and we were grading it all ourselves here in order to have the quality of cheese that we wanted to be serving because it tasted really good. It had that tangy, stretchy, good mozzarella um, quality to it. And so um, we did that for many, many years. And um, as our time is getting crunched as far as how much we can prepare in the kitchen as the amount of numbers of pizzas we need to sell in a projected evening is going to be, I just started looking for another option that might be available this last winter and came across the product that is a very high-quality cheese that is um, created in Viroqua, Wisconsin, and it comes grated already. So this way I'm not going to kill my Hobart food processor by running <laughs> you know, another 100 pounds of cheese through it, which has to be hand measured out into cups and the amount of labor that goes into all of that. I mean, those sorts of expenses and time um, labor costs have to be thought about as well. And you don't necessarily think about them as much at first when volumes are smaller and um, you just have more time. But as it gets busier, it definitely makes a big difference. And so we were really excited this summer because it's a very good quality. It's one of the highest quality um, grated mozzarellas, I believe, we have available to us. And it's made from a group of 100 premium milk producers in the state of Wisconsin here. And it's been a lifesaver to have it. Now, your husband is a dairy farmer, right? Yeah, Jason um, operates a dairy farm here about 10 miles from Suncrest Gardens. Is that something that's associated with Suncrest Gardens, or is that something that's completely separate? Well, since we're looking for good cheese, and it made sense to think about, oh, hey, honey, how about you just start (laughs) making some cheese, right, that I can use on the farm here? But uh, Just make us some cheese, honey. Yeah, come on, honey, come on. (laughs) Why don't you just start 
or and actually, actually how I found the company in Viroqua because I was calling around to a variety of of um, cheese producers and plants and asking them like what volume of milk they would need to make us like our own mozzarella, you know, cheese that we could do, you know, some select shipments of his milk to the plants um, and have them be processed into our own cheese, you know, through kind of that a distributor type thing that way. And it just, I wasn't really getting anywhere with the whole conversation. And there wasn't a lot in that size amount that we needed that was going to make sense and stuff. So we're just going to let him milk the cows and (laughs) produce milk and that he's always done in that way. And I kind of do my thing here. So we kind of operate the his and her farm operations here. I just think that's really interesting. You know, my mom always used to observe about my farm that it was like we were living in the fishbowl. You know, we were we were always there and we were always together and we were always kind of up in each other's business. And and uh, it must be kind of nice not to have that. Well, you know, there's probably there's plus and minuses to it. I mean, we both were well established in our farms when we met. And so you know, there wasn't an easy way to, I mean, people know this place as the pizza farm and it's sort of set up in its flow to make sense that way. There's no way that we could just take this and move it onto his farm, nor the same. I have 16 acres here. This is not set up to be a dairy farm. So we just did what we always did, you know, and we all live here um, at the farm at Suncrest, uh, but he is the commuting farmer. So he leaves at 3.30 in the morning to go get the cows um, milked, you know, starting about 4.30 and returns home at about 7 o'clock at night after everything is done for the day. And, you know, we're pretty happy to see each other at that time of night (laughs) and (laughs) both pretty tired and have done a lot during the day. So there's always uh, good conversation and updates to what's happening. But yet we're, we're both pretty independent in how we run you know, each of the operations that way. So you're turning your produce and your meats into wood-fired pizzas and and frozen soups and sauces. Um, What else are you doing with the food that you've got? Well, we are just raising so much food on this farm, and it's more than we can even utilize, you know, for those pizza nights. And um, there's more than I can even do with creating frozen type ready to eat healthy foods. And so, you know, sometimes when we're out there like picking the beans and you're thinking about mm, this fresh green bean salad with a vinaigrette and those sliced cherry tomatoes in it, and a little bit of feta, you know, you start salivating as you're like working in the garden over what you're going to eat like with that food. And so we just thought about offering the food in more of a cafe type style, you know, where you come here and it's already prepared and inspired by the season and what's fresh and what we have here. And so we've been exploring um, a variety of different ways to do that. And the Garden Cafe is kind of what has come about in that. And so tell me a little bit more about how the Garden Cafe works at a practical level. So the cafe, the Garden Cafe is only open um, the second Saturday of the month. It was a way for us to kind of dabble with it. And it needed to be a different night, obviously, than pizza night because we are already focused um, on 
that one style of food that night. And the Garden Cafe is kind of things beyond pizza. So there's different vegetable curry dishes. There might be like a, we made some naan using our wood-fired pizza oven and had a tiki masala or um, a lamb with some masala sauce and stuff in there. Um, some gyro sandwiches and farm burgers and different seasonal fresh salads and things like that. So things that are not regularly offered, you know, on that pizza night. But it's been a really fun way that the staff and I have enjoyed, you know, doing something different with the food. And like all things, you know, getting that word out takes some time. And to distinguish that the Garden Cafe is not just another pizza night because, oh, oh, they hear we might be open that Saturday. So then they think, oh, they're open on a Saturday for pizza night. Oh, they're open every Saturday. <laughs> and so there's some challenges with trying to add you know, something new into the mix and then communicating that word to our customers about ooh, what this is, when it is, and what's all involved with that. And I'm just curious as you kind of dive into this whole other area of culinary exploration, do you have training as a chef? You know, I do not have any formal training in um, cooking or a chef. I just am a girl who enjoys food and likes to cook and loves to use what's in season and not waste anything. So, um, yeah, I just kind of been learning as I go and it's, it's a fun, creative challenge for me. I love it. With that, we're going to turn to our lightning round, but first we're going to get a quick word from one more sponsor. This lightning round is brought to you by High Mowing Organic Seeds. When your livelihood depends on the quality of your seeds, be confident in your investment. When you grow organically, you need to know that your seeds were selected to perform in organic conditions. High Mowing pro offers professional quality seeds grown by organic farmers for organic farmers. Purchase your seeds from High Mowing before December 21st and receive a 10% discount through High Mowing's Community Supported Seeds Program. This program is just like a CSA. Customers purchase seed shares, supporting an independently owned organic seed company. And as a thank you, you receive 10% off the value of your share. Shares can be purchased in any amount. For details, visit highmowingseeds.com save or call 866-735-4454 and also request a free copy of the 2018 High Mowing Organic Seeds Catalog. Heather, what's your favorite tool on the farm? My favorite tool is the cobra, the standing cobra weeder. That's that's that tool that's a I mean so it's a it's a stand up hoe, but it's got like a it's got kind of a hook on it and it comes down to what what ends up being a fairly small point uh or a little kind of little shovel on the end that's maybe about an inch across and about 2 inches long. Yes, that it's I feel like it is my hands, but it's of metal and so it's like takes a lot of that work off of my fingertips and my joints. And frankly, I am near the 40 point here uh, and been farming for almost 15 years. And so those fine joints in the hands are definitely starting to feel things. So I love the tools that can take place of those. And what's your favorite crop to grow? I probably find the most enjoyment out of growing tomatoes followed by peppers. So many colors, so many flavors. 
so much just deliciousness can happen from them and while they're fresh as well as being able to transform them into lots of different frozen preserved ways. And do you grow most of your tomatoes in the high tunnel? I do grow all of the varieties um, except the cherries and the romas I grow outside. All of the other varieties I grow vertically um, trained to a single stem in the hoop house. What's your farming superpower? I feel like I have a way to look at things with like a creative, positive side to things. And so it's not like the answer is no, it can't happen. It's like, "Mm, we just haven't found the right answer yet. You know, it's uh, just a matter of sometimes your perspective. Love that. And if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be? Crazy's not a bad thing. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> um, you know, it might actually be like a little crazy is okay. It takes a little edge. It takes going out on a limb and trying things as long as your heart is behind it and you feel like it is the right decision, you know, with your head and your heart, but not everybody's going to be willing to take those sort of risks. And that kind of what makes you stand out if you do. Heather Seacrest, thank you so much for being part of the Farmer to Farmer podcast today. Well, thanks, Chris. It's been a pleasure visiting with you today. All right, so wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 149 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast. You can find the notes for the show at farmertofarmerpodcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Seacrest. That's S-E-C-R-I-S-T. The transcript for this episode is brought to you by Earth Tools, offering the most complete selection of walk-behind farming equipment and high-quality garden tools in North America. And by Osborne Quality Seeds, a dedicated partner for growers. Visit osborneseed.com for high-quality seed, industry-leading customer service, and fast order fulfillment. And by CoolBot, allowing you to build an affordable walk-in cooler powered by a window air conditioning unit. Save $20 on your CoolBot when you visit farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash CoolBot. Additional funding for transcripts is provided by North Central SARE, providing grants and education to advance innovations in sustainable agriculture. You can get the show notes for every Farmer to Farmer podcast right in your inbox by signing up for my email newsletter at farmertofarmerpodcast.com. Also, please head on over to iTunes and leave us a review if you enjoy the show or talk to us in the show notes or tell your friends on Facebook. We're at Purple Pitchfork on Facebook. And hey, when you talk to our sponsors, please let them know how much you appreciate their support of a resource you value. You can support the show directly by going to farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash donate. I am working to make the best farming podcast in the world and you can help. Finally, please let me know who you would like to hear from on the show through the suggestions form at farmertofarmerpodcast.com. I'll do my best to get them on the show. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there and keep the tractor running.